Like Chad said, we're taking a break from our study through Ephesians. Today on the church calendar is uh, what we call Palm Sunday. It's the, the Sunday before Jesus rose from the dead. It is the Sunday that he entered into Jerusalem. And I'm not going to be preaching a sermon about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, but I do want to talk about Jesus' entry into our lives. And um, I'm just going to be totally honest. As we've been coming upon the Easter season, I have found in myself uh, a lack of like in excitement and momentum toward Easter. And as I've talked with many people in the church, there's a lot of us who have felt the same way. And we can try to manufacture something like, but this is like the crux of our faith. And it is. But at the end of the day, uh, we can't just like manufacture that, right? And so it has felt to me like, like it's, it's been hard to see, as if like my, my eyes were dimmed. Um, and it seems like we don't care that the majority of our community is lost and spiritually dead and destined for perishment in hell, apart from the cross. Or if we do, we're not doing anything about it. And I realize that it's not, it's not just you guys, as I've talked to some of you. Maybe, maybe I've lost... Uh, some sight. Maybe, maybe I don't really care. Maybe the cross has become familiar to me, so much so that it almost seems ordinary. And if it seems ordinary, then why in the world would I care about Easter? Because Easter, the resurrection means nothing if the cross means nothing to me. Let me just look at this cross for a second. <laughs> Many of us feel like we've just kind of lost sight, like we, we can't see clearly the beauty and the power of the cross. And it's like trying to see with the lights off, right? And no matter how much we want to see the, like, the glory of it, it's dimmed. Can't see the detail. Can't get the fullness of it. Because our vision is diminished. Even if we desire to see it, it doesn't actually allow us to see it any better. Something has to be turned on. Something has to be illuminated in order for us to see it. And this is what it feels like for many of us right now. We know the cross is there and we can kind of make it out, but we can't really see it for what it is. Like I said, if we can't see the cross, then the resurrection means nothing. Of course, we wouldn't be excited about Easter. Of course, we wouldn't want to pray and fast for people to come to faith when they hear the good news of Jesus, because the news is not really that good to us. Or if it is, it's not good enough for us to actually do anything about it. I mean, if it was good, I'd want to tell everyone, right? But I'm not telling anyone. But it is good, which means that the goodness of the gospel is not the problem. The problem is that I can't see properly. And as I sat with this this week, I had to ask the Lord to illuminate my eyes to see the wonder of the cross again. But I also had to participate in that illuminating by allowing light in. And so as I began to preach to myself for days, honestly, days straight, and as I did, I began to be more illuminated to be able to see once again. Because although there's maybe a dozen factors given to wives, so many of us in this season feel like, I don't know, I just, I, I know I want to be excited about the cross and the resurrection. I know I want to. I just, I just, it just feels like it's, it's familiar. It's so familiar, it's become ordinary to me. If it's ordinary, like, where's the glory? And although there may be a million factors, or at least a dozen, I think that the solution 
is the same for all of them. Our eyes have to be illuminated. We have to let the light in because the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. But if the enemy can cloud our vision as believers, he'll do it. And so it's my prayer today on this Palm Sunday that light would be shown into our hearts that we would once again see rightly. See, I, I, need, I need the light of the gospel, not for salvation, but for renewal and for revival in my heart. Because revival doesn't start out there. It starts in here. It starts in here. And then it moves out there. I need the gospel to be applied to every facet of my life. The fact that Jesus paid a debt that I could not pay so I could leave a life that I did not deserve is a truth that I need preached to me over and over. And the fact that I did nothing to deserve it and I can do nothing to keep it is a gift of grace. I need preached into every single moment and every single thought of my life. So this week as I began to recall the story of humanity and the story of Jesus to myself, my eyes began to illuminate. And so we weren't planning on doing this today, but that's just what I want to do this morning. I want to just recall together our story and the story of God. But first, I'm going to pray for us before I do that, that our eyes would be opened to see once again. Lord, I'm praying now that you, the Lord of heaven and earth, would illuminate our hearts, that our hearts would be flooded with light so that we can begin to see again our not seeing doesn't change your authoritative position on the throne. You're glorious and powerful and in control and sovereign. You need nothing from us. But Lord, my life sucks when I don't see the glory of who you are. So we ask that you to open our eyes to see. You to drive out familiarity and you to open our eyes to see once again. We don't want to manufacture anything. We ask Holy Spirit that you would reveal to us all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to start this morning by just reading this, uh, this story of the prodigal son. And I'm not going to I'm not going to preach necessarily this sermon, but I am going to refer to it. And I'm going to read it because I think it perfectly frames the heart of God in the gospel and the desperation and depravity of man. And as I talk now, like I said, I'm just going to recall our story. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, then allow this time to be like a, hey, remember when? Allow this time to be, hey, remember how? And allow this to, to stir up awe and wonder and gratitude toward God. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I, I hope that this is the best news you've ever heard in your life. Jesus speaking here, if you're in Luke, Luke 15, starting verse 11, tells the story. He says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate on prodigal living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. He went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses... <clears throat> He said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. 
I'll get up. I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with the feast because the son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving for you many years, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave me a go- you, and you never gave me a, no- a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. Son, he said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This story should, I think, really be called the story of the prodigal father, not the prodigal son, because prodigal, while it can mean wasteful, it can also mean excessive or lavish to do things in abundance. And this is the kind of heart and love that the father has for the son here, actually, for both sons. And I think that this story is really about the father just as much, if not more, than it is about the son, especially in light of the fact that Jesus tells it right after he tells these two other brief stories. First, the one about the shepherd who has a hundred sheep who will leave 99 to go find one lost one. And then the story about this woman who has 10 coins and loses just one and spends all night hunting for the one coin until she finds it. And in all three of those stories, Jesus is illustrating for us the heart of God toward humanity. And this has been his heart since the beginning, always fighting for reconciliation and relationship. All the way from Adam and Eve. There he was, God. And God exists eternally as one, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existing in one, in what, in what some theologians have called inner Trinitarian love. Before there was people for God to relate with, God existed in communal relationship. God is a being of loving, eternal relationship, Father, Son, Spirit. And it was from this loving communal relationship that he created humanity. And when humanity was created, we were, we were brought into this community of loving relationship. And we were created not only with the capacity to love and be loved, but we were created in love. And I know that right there, some of you just like are uncomfortable. It's hard for us to receive. We want God to only be holy and massive. And he is holy and massive, but he is also present and intimate. God is also relational. God is also love. And God created humanity out as objects of his love. And at the core of our being is a longing to be loved in loving relationship with God. We see this in Genesis a bit. We see this in the new heaven and the new earth, though, what we were actually destined to be. And we see it in life of Jesus. See, Jesus comes and he shows humanity how we were intended to relate to our Heavenly Father. Jesus came to reconcile, right? Jesus came to restore. And to restore means to bring something back to its original intent. And when we followed Jesus out of the grave into newness of life, we didn't just follow him to eternal life. We followed him to eternal relationship. The kind of relationship that he had with God when he walked the earth which was interactive 
confident, loving, accepting, safe relationship and partnership with God. And this is what Adam and Eve had in the beginning until they didn't. So Adam and Eve were created and were there with God where every crevice of their being was occupied and satisfied by the one that they were created for. And they had no need of anything. They had no physical need. They had no emotional need. I can't even imagine. But this was the intent that God had for humanity in the beginning. No pain. No discontentment. No discouragement. No sickness. No insecurity. No shame. No longing for anything because they were fully satisfied and fully filled. And then whatever they did was good. They didn't have to wonder if what they were doing was right or wrong. There was no wrong thing. They could only, they could do anything they wanted and it was good. Except one thing, right? There was one thing that they were prohibited from doing. In all the earth, in all they had dominion over, in all the glory that God had created for them to rule over with him. Of all that was theirs to partake of, there was one thing that was not. The Lord commanded Adam, you may eat freely from every tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. Thousands and thousands, maybe even millions of trees placed by this loving father in the garden for their pleasure. And every one of them, like John Piper says, reminded them of God's goodness. Every savoring of every fruit was to savor the goodness of God. Every tasting of every fruit was to taste of the goodness of God and to remind them of his goodness and his generosity, to remind them that he was a good and loving father who would provide everything that they needed. There was one tree, though, that was not good for them to eat of. But why wasn't it good? That's my question. Because I like to know the why behind things. Like, like why though? What, why, God? Why not that tree? Oh, because if you eat of it, you'll surely die. Nope. That's what will happen if you do eat of it, but that doesn't tell me why not eat of that tree. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But here's what I think. Because the only answer I've ever heard was, well, love only matters if you have a choice, right? And so God had to give a choice to humanity to kind of qualify our love. But this diminishes God to like some kind of insecure being who needs to make sure our love for him is authentic and implies that God needs our love in the first place, both of which are false. God doesn't need our love. And he doesn't need to be assured that our love for him is pure. He is not insecure. We were not created because God needed our love. We were created as objects of his love. And I love what John Piper says. That eating of the tree says to God, I am moving away from your covering of blessing and provision as my good father and choosing now to take control of my life and my destiny. I love it. But it still doesn't answer my question. Yeah, but why this tree? The tree was good. God created everything and said it's good. But what was so bad about eating of this one that God forbid it? Because God is not some maniacal cosmic killjoy just keeping good things from his children for no good reason. That's not how God works. Sin is not bad because it is forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. Let me say it again. Sin is not bad because it is forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it is bad. Our father was keeping something from us that was not good for us. It was not good for his intentions for us. I think the answer to the question is actually in the description of the tree. 
if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happens? Besides, eventually, death. It's pretty simple. You receive the knowledge of good and evil. Which seems kind of cool. Or does it? See, prior to eating of the tree, two things to make note of. Number one, humanity had no knowledge of good and evil. That's why the tree was there, to get it. Everything was good. Everything was right. There was no knowledge of good and evil. Number two, there was no evil to have knowledge of, at least not within ourselves. There was only good in humanity. And even when Eve was tempted by the serpent, the sin didn't come from within her. It came from outside of her, and sin came toward her from the serpent. But when they disobeyed and ate, two things happened. Number one, the presence of evil came into them and in turn all of us, the entire human race. Sin entered into humanity now as a part of our genetic code. And everything was no longer only good. Disobedience to God ushered in. Oh, you're amazing. Thank you. Disobedience to God ushered in sin into humanity. The presence of evil appeared in us. Second thing that happened when they ate was that an awareness of evil entered humanity. This is the knowledge of good and evil. Not only would evil now be present within humanity, but the knowledge of such evil would also be present. And that's what happened, right? Adam and Eve screwed up, and then they immediately knew it. We've all been there, right? And we know what happens. Let's just take just one sin for a second. Pornography. 65% of the men in this room and 25% of the women have looked at porn in this last month. That's the national church-going statistic. And Reality of Interior is not immune to that. Many in this room are addicted to porn or using it to medicate in some way. Maybe for you, you're the minority. Maybe it's not sexual sin. Maybe for you, it's anger and lying, whatever it is. You immediately know when you sinned, right? We have the knowledge between good and evil now. And what does this knowledge when we sin produce in us? Like immediately, what does it produce? Usually shame. Usually shame. The knowledge and awareness of our sin, if we actually sit with it, usually produces shame. And it's been happening since the beginning. Before sin entered, Adam and Eve, through their disobedience, and before they were aware of it, they were naked. And Genesis 2.25 says, unashamed. And then immediately after sin enters, and they are aware of sin in them, they are exposed. And what happens? Genesis 3, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. A sound, no doubt, that used to be beautiful. They heard the sound of God coming, and they hid. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Some of us have children. Can you imagine if when your car pulled up outside and you heard, your kids heard it, that they went and hid in the closet from you? out of fear, but not because you were mean, but because they were so ashamed of themselves. That's what this is. Adam isn't hiding because he's afraid of what God will do to him. It says that he was afraid because he knew he was naked. He was ashamed. And what we know from studies is that shame is the leading factor in repeated cycles of addiction and self-destructive behaviors. And what we know from experience is that shame, like nothing else, can cripple a person from living to their full potential and fulfilling God's given destiny and call and purpose on their life. And that shame tells people that they are disqualified as Christians, preventing their growth and efficacy. 
I think that God didn't want humanity to have the knowledge of good and evil because the knowledge of such things brings shame and shame destroys the human spirit that he made for his glory. Humanity was not designed to handle the weight of an awareness of our sin. We crumble under the weight of it. Even the knowledge of it is too great, which is why the awareness of it, apart from applying the gospel to it, always and only brings condemnation and shame. And this matters, Christian, because Jesus came and bore our shame. For the joy set before him, he despised the shame. He told shame, nah, you don't get the victory. But so many Christians are still stuck at this place, like day one of salvation. I'm a sinner, forgive me, God. I don't want to be full of shame anymore. I'm a sinner, forgive me, God. I don't want to be full of shame anymore. I'm a sinner. It's like Groundhog Day, like still stuck at day one of salvation. We're sinners, we're sinners, and Jesus died to save us. The story doesn't stop there. Why did he save us? To this purpose, to this end, to be set free and restored back to the original, loving, accepting, shameless relationship and partnership with God. But where sin entered, shame entered, and shame always brings isolation. Those of you who are stuck in shame right now can testify. It isolates you from God, and it isolates you from others. And where God had created loving, intimate, confident, shameless, perfect relationship where we are partnering with him in his rule, sin had now destroyed it. And the harmony that Adam and Eve had once shared with God now turned to dissonance, and in turn... Every single one of their offspring now born into this dissonance, separated, disconnected from God, and unable to sink back up with him. And where there was once safety and confident love, now there was fear and shame and discord. And that's what sin does to us. It brings shame and fear and discord until ultimately death. What it earns us, the wages of sin says in Romans 6, is death. And not just physical death, it is a spiritual death. For we were born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, it says in Ephesians 2, and unable to make ourselves alive to God. And you know, sin isn't something to like laugh at. It isn't something that God winks at. Sin is offensive to God. It offends every bit of who he is. It is contrary to everything that he is. If God is light, then sin is darkness. If God looks like life and color and beauty and, and, and blooming flowers, then sin looks like death and destruction and barrenness, unable to ever produce anything even remotely resembling life. And Satan is the destroyer. And so when he introduced sin to humanity, he, he introduced destruction. And because God is fully righteous and because he is light and no darkness can dwell in his presence, sin then cannot be in his presence, which is why the prophet Isaiah wrote, now your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear, that he, I'm sorry, that will not hear. And guys, this is at our core as human beings. Not only do we sin, but we are innately sinful because we, before we ever make a conscious decision to do something in a sinful way. We have a disease of sin that can only and forever bring destruction and chaos. And from as early as we can remember, sin has been calling our name and we've been responding to it even as Romans 6 definitively reminds us that we were slaves of sin, doing whatever sin led us to do. We were selfish, self-centered, and self-consumed people, born in iniquity, conceived in sin. And even when we tried to do good, our motives were impure at best, selfish at worst. And even our righteous deeds, the prophet wrote, have become like filthy rags. There's nobody righteous. There's not even one. 
And because God is not only a loving father, but also a righteous and true judge, our sin now meant that we were under his judgment. In a moment, humanity went from experiencing the love and nearness of God to being under his wrath, separated by an unscalable chasm. Don't get God confused with us. God is not like you. When we are full of wrath, it is because we are looking for personal vengeance and selfish vengeance. God is God. He is perfect in all of his ways. And God does not judge because of vengeance. God judges because of his righteousness. But he does judge. He cannot tolerate sin. He must judge it. And that's good, right? Billy said it a few weeks ago. We need a judge like this. We want a God like this who is just and judges sin and doesn't just turn a blind eye at sin. God must judge if he was to remain God. But God being just means that I too am under his wrath because I was born in iniquity. My sin has separated me from God. And I was under his full weight of his wrath. As Paul reminds us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world doing whatever the prince of the power of the air wanted you to do, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Each of us, children of wrath before we were children of God because God must punish sin, and now sin was within us. Did it break his heart to have to do it? I don't know, man. I mean, Jesus came and his heart was broken as he saw people, so yeah, probably. I know for sure that his love was full in him and he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't want to have to pour out wrath on his created beings. I know for sure that he wanted to find a way for me to not get what I deserved and for him to still remain righteous and just, which is precisely where the harmony of love and justice meet. Because right when we thought there was no hope at all, God sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Sent his son, man. I got a couple sons. I have two here and three in heaven. I remember the days that were born. I'd never give one of them for you. I'd never give one of them for a billion of you. But God gave his only son. And whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. It means the sacrifice that satisfies Paul writing again says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice, the propitiation for sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just. And he makes sinners right. <laughs> in his sight when they believe in Jesus. God is both just and the justifier of those who come to him. It says every one of us had sinned. Nobody could meet up to God's standard. And in our sin, we must be punished. And that is why Jesus came to become a propitiation, a satisfying sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice. God sent his son to suffer and die on a cross to take on the punishment that I deserved, that you deserved. And the wages of sin was death, and so Jesus died 
on our behalf. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that he became, in his death, he became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. And when he did, he fully satisfied the wrath and justice of God. And on the cross, Jesus willingly took it all on because of his great love with which he loved us. And he died so that sinners might be rescued from the judgment due them. For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But the only way to be justified is to be made right before God and trusting in Jesus. Receiving redemption as a free gift of grace, it said there in Romans. Confessing Jesus as, you're the king now, you're the Lord of my life, and believing in my heart, yes, God rose you from the dead, Jesus, declaring that you are God in human flesh, and everything you said is right and true. Sin had separated us from God. Sin drew us to destruction and we responded to the call and why we were still in our rebellion, why we were enemies of God, Christ died for us at just the right time. When we were powerless, Romans 5 says, Christ died for the ungodly. For once you, Christian, were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, which is exactly who we were before sin entered the world, without blemish and free from accusation. And this is exactly what Jesus came to bring us back to He came to to bring redemption. Christ came to buy us back. That's what redemption means. To buy us back into where we had originally fallen from. Back into our original state of relationship with the Father. When sin entered, we were separated from God. But sometimes when we say separated, we forget that implies that we were once connected. That was our destined place before sin entered the world and is still our destined place as individual human beings. But sin robbed us of it, and when it robbed us of it, we began to forget who we were, and we forget, began to forget from whom we were and for whom we were. Some of you here today, you don't know Jesus yet, so you have no clue that this is who you were always intended to be, and some of us who are Christians have forgotten, man. We're stuck in Groundhog Day at day one of salvation. Like, I'm a sinner, you forgave me. I'm a sinner, you forgave me. But planted deep in the heart of every human being is a remnant of this truth. Solomon wrote that God has placed eternity inside of our hearts. You ever heard of these people who, uh, who lose a limb and then they can still feel the pain of it afterwards, even after the limb is gone. It's called phantom pain. The thing about phantom pain, though, is you could only experience it if you ever actually had it in the first place. You can only experience the sensation of an arm that you actually once ever had. That's phantom pain. I, I heard a pastor recently say, human ideals are actually the phantom pain of the soul. Take the concept of peace, for instance, which is a human ideal. But in all of human history, we've never actually had peace. We've been at war and fighting since the beginning. So where then is this idea and this longing for peace come from? C.S. Lewis wrote that, that uh, you can only long for something that is actually out there. And he was right. But we've never experienced a world of peace. How do we know then that peace is out there? We long for world peace. We long for no more hunger. We long for the uh, cure for chronic disease. These ideals drive the human race, but not because we've actually ever had them. We've never had them. These things drive the human race because somewhere in our souls, these things once lived. Our souls long for peace, not because we have experienced it, but because we once experienced God as a human race and God is the source of all peace. 
Our souls long for fully accepting, perfect, unconditional love, not because we've ever actually experienced it, but because there was a seed planted there by God, and God is perfect, accepting love. These human ideals are like the phantom pain of the soul whispering to us that we were created for something, by someone, for something, for someone beyond this realm, beyond this world. And every human being spends their entire life trying to get back to what Adam and Eve had in the beginning, whether they recognize it or not, having no clue where to find it. This is the eternity that God has placed in our hearts and that we all long for. And this is what was broken when sin entered the world. And what's crazy is that when the dissonance of sin entered, leading us to destruction, and when humanity gave up on looking for God and settled for second-rate, second-class functional saviors like sex and money and success, trying to fill this gaping emptiness inside, God never stopped looking for us. Adam, Adam, where are you? And even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses and full of shame, God came to us. While I was even loving every moment of what I didn't realize was my self-destruction, even when I became discontent with God and content to not be with God and took advantage of his grace and wanted nothing to do with him, he never stopped loving me. In the beginning, there was a conversation happening between our hearts and God's. We were synced up like two perfectly harmonized frequencies. But when sin entered, the conversation and synchronization stopped. We stopped being able to sync up with him. And so we've been looking for other places to try to sync up, never finding the frequency. Clouded by the noise of our sin. But right when we thought all was lost... In his love, the God who held the universe in the palm of his hands, who had made the world, shrank himself down and crawled into human skin. The creator, humbling himself to the limitations of his creation, and God became a man and dwelt among us so that we could sync up and hear him once again, humanity at large had, had forgotten what it felt like to have our souls resonate at the frequency of God. And when God stepped down from eternity and humbled himself and became a man, it became like us. It was like, it was like he looked in our face again and said, hey, look at me. Remember me? Remember us? I'm your God. We were in the beginning. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now we have seen his glory, the, only, the glory of the only begotten son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Guys, we were the lost sheep that the shepherd came and found. We were the lost coin that the woman stayed up all night looking for. We were the rebellious son throwing away our lives that the father ran to when we were far off. We were the self-righteous son who wouldn't come in, who the father went out to. While we were lost in our sin, God crawled into human flesh to come and find us. Jesus became a man to come and find me. People say, what about Buddha? What about Muhammad? What about Krishna? Listen, none of them came for me. Only Jesus came and found me. Jesus said, I, I'm the only way to the Father. He was saying, Tom, I'm the only way home. It wasn't a popularity contest. He's God. He doesn't need a popularity contest. He was saying, Dom, nobody else is coming for you, bud. Nobody else is coming for you. I'm the only one that, number one, knew where you were, first of all, and second of all, cared enough to do something about it. The beauty of the gospel is not that I am good enough and maybe I can get to God. The beauty of the gospel is that I'm not good enough and so God came for me. The Father was in Jesus reconciling us back to himself. He is the Father who ran to the prodigal son when he was far way off. 
He is the father who went out to the self-righteous, arrogant son who would never be or do enough. He is the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one. He was the woman who stays up all night looking for the one lost coin. He is the one who came out to Adam and found Adam when he was full of shame and in his fear. The phantom pain in our soul is longing for love. It's longing for him who is love. He is love. And in his love, Jesus came to reconcile us back into this harmony with God. And the gospel is not just beautiful because our sin was removed. It is beautiful because what came from our sin being removed. Jesus died on the cross to redeem us, to restore us, to bring us back to something that we were intended to be, to bring us back into loving, safe, shameless relationship where we partner with God and what he is doing. And for decades we've been preaching sin, 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 forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. As if all the cross was, was just forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins was a means to an end, though. And every time I start talking about the love of God and relationship, man, I, I, I feel people getting squirmy in their seats, as if we just want the cross to be about our sin. But when we do this, we diminish the cross to a legal transaction. The cross was not just a legal transaction to deal with our sin, guys. The cross was a transaction of love to purchase our adoption back into relationship with God. God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. It doesn't get any clearer than that. The whole point from the beginning was loving, intimate, personal, confident, shameless, partnering relationship with our creator. That is what sin broke. And that is what Jesus died to get back. The removal of sin was not the end. The removal of sin was a means to an end. I'm gonna say something that's gonna make you uncomfortable, but Christian, Jesus did not die on the cross so your sin could be forgiven. Jesus died on the cross to reconcile you back to God and your sin was in the way. And so he dealt with it on the cross. And when he did, he lifted the weight of our sin that humanity was not designed to bear. He bore our shame that we were never intended to carry. And when he cried out, it is finished, the veil was torn in two and he opened up the pathway to once again sink back into the rhythm of God's heart, back into relationship, harmonious relationship with him. And by his atoning sacrifice, he made us alive when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And ask the worship team to come up now. Look at that cross again. It's the same as it was before, but I'm asking that God would remind us this week that this cross, his cross bore our sin, that his cross bore our shame, that his cross bore our sin and our sickness our disease, our rebellion, our loneliness. And he died the death that we deserve so we could live the life that we did not deserve. I'm done here, but <clears throat> before we transition out of this, uh, I just wanted to ask if there's maybe somebody here today who you don't know Jesus, all this stuff is new to you, you got bamboozled into coming to church. Sorry, this is kind of a gnarly Sunday. There's a God in heaven that loves you. And your heart was designed to resonate at his frequency. And everything you've been looking for, you're always going to find discord there and discontentment because you were designed for God. It's the phantom pain of your soul. You long for peace, it's because you're longing for God, he's peace. You long for contentment, satisfaction. You're longing for God, he's the one who satisfies. Jesus died on the cross to take away your sin so that you could come back into relationship with God because your sin separated you from God. So I don't know if there's anybody here like that, but I just want to take 30 seconds and ask if you're here. Um, we are for you. Most of the people in this room love Jesus. We have found life in Jesus. 
He is our only hope. We are for you coming into the family of God and coming into relationship with God. We are for you. And if that's you today, you say, I'm responding to Jesus today. I'm responding to his goodness today. I'm responding to the the good news of the cross of Jesus, that he died and bore my shame and sin so I could be forgiven and come back into relationship with God, my creator. If that's you today, and you say, I want to turn from my sin, and I want to turn toward God, would you just raise your hand real quick? Somebody like that in here? Listen, we're for you. You don't have to be embarrassed. You can raise your hand up high. Is there anybody in here like that? I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to come up here and tell us your name or something. Is there anybody in here like that? Just raise your hand. Here's what we're going to do then, guys. <clears throat> we're going to spend a, a minute right now reflecting on the cross. So I'm going to ask that we, we quiet our hearts in stillness and prayer. If it helps, maybe take a few deep breaths. You're going to be still and know that he's God. Let's begin to reflect on what the cross accomplished on our behalf. Allow your heart to find a place of gratitude toward God. What are you thankful for? Just find that in your heart. 